Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Tara Hunt is a networking pioneer who has considered herself a native of the online social landscape since before there were web browsers. Her enthusiasm for learning how people use new tools and techniques to connect with other people still keeps her engaged, even as the context evolves constantly. Tara's work has included writing blogs and books about social capital, a.k.a. Woofy, creating co-working spaces, consulting with organizations large and small on social strategy, and developing video channels to support personalized brand marketing. In this episode, Tara will tell us about the challenges she faced being a single mom while her career shifted back and forth from employment to independent consulting, how she turned her own fear of missing out into an asset, and how she's learned to keep herself steady as she surfs the turbulent waters of the social web. So today I'm speaking to Tara Hunt. She's a social media pioneer who's published a book on the woofy factor, talking about social networking and how the ephemeral qualities that we share as a reputation can make a difference in our lives online. She also was one of the early evangelists and pioneers in the co-working space. Tara, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming and joining the show. That introduction went over so many different directions, and I feel like I've missed a lot. How do you introduce yourself to people? Yeah, that's a good question. I have had a a very interesting career in that it hasn't followed any sort of linear notion of this, you know, you go to school for something, you get your entry-level job, and then you climb your way up the ranks. Mine has been sort of like, I'm going to run in this direction quickly, and then I'm going to run in that direction quickly. And when I hit the what I feel like is the finish line, I decide to run in another direction. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I guess people might say that it's because I've got a career ADD or something like that. It sounds like a hard thing to prepare yourself for. I mean, how did you set off in that direction? Well, I mean, I think part of it had to do with the stuff that I was interested in early in my career was stuff that hadn't really been fully formed anyway. So I was interested in the web very early on, got on in like 91. And I started really exploring in that direction. And though I could see a lot of potential there, there was no true trajectory. There was no like, if you took a computer science degree, which I started, I went to university in 93, 93. I think 93 to take uh, or 95 to take a computer science degree because I thought this is great. I love the, you know, what's happening with the web and where it's going. And there were no internet courses. It was like uh, C and ASP.net and or not even not .net yet. It was just ASP. It was like these Cobalt and Fortran, you know, kind of programming languages. And I think I took uh, about three months of classes and then I switched over to cultural studies because people were in the cultural studies department already talking about the impact of how technology was changing human interaction and behavior. So that, so those are my electives. And I decided, well, they seem to be more on the ball than the computer science department 
So all that to say that I feel like I was inventing my career as it went along. And I was just really following my gut. And I think mixed with that is I, I, I get bored easily as well. So I couldn't see myself in a role that was already established. I don't like to follow rules and paths that are laid down for me. So when you graduated, you had a degree in cultural cultural studies? Yeah. That's a difficult one to, to focus in, in one direction. So I can imagine you must have stepped out into the work world and said, what do I do with this? Yeah, I think I did. And, and, and actually, the rest of the early days of my career were very much, I think, a fluke in getting jobs with bosses that understood what I brought to the table because I was so interested in the culture of the web and the development of technology and how it was changing interaction and affecting business and marketing. You know, I was able to come across different, you know, I, my very first job was at a small oil and gas firm and the, and, and the CEO there was obsessed with the internet. <laughs> What I love about this is that you were interested in an area that, uh, that at the time it was so obscure, and yet it's, it's become massive and monumental. But I mean, take us back to 1991. What did social networking online look like back then? Well, it was like IRC, right? It was early Usenet groups. In 91, there was no browser, right? So it was, you know, I can't even remember what it was, the protocol was called, but you, you know, dialed in with your modem and there were a bunch of commands that you typed in and you, you know, got onto message boards, basically. And there was a piece of software, well, it wasn't a piece of software, it was like your, I'm going to sound very untechnical, but it, it, it was like a command line program that you got into IRC through. And I had a friend whose husband was a computer scientist and he was, he knew how to set all this stuff. So he came over and he set all this stuff up for me because I was really interested in it. I did not know how to set up these protocols and stuff, but he, I had like a cheat sheet where he would be like this command for this, this command for this, this is how you get this moving. And the next thing I know, I was chatting with people around the world who were like me getting into early flame wars with people like, <laughs> I remember talking about when I went into computer science. And then at some point, I, when I switched to the communications department, I made like some posts about switching to liberal arts and saying like, I think liberal arts is actually where it's at because, you know, it's multidisciplinary and da da da. And I remember this, this woman got on, she was so mad. She was just like, that's the stupidest thing. Of course, a liberal arts major would say that. <laughs> I remember getting into this huge <laughs> flame war. That would be 1997, probably. Oh, you're throwing your career away by, by not, not studying the hard sciences back then. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think there was like a computer, women in computer science message board. Anyways, it was like, I, then I was ostracized from the board pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've managed to make your way anyway. I mean, what, what took you from that to the woofy factor? Oh, my God. There's a lot of different paths and and going and and running in various directions that got me there. Well, to start with, I'm curious. Can you explain to people how you define Woofy and how how you came to write this book? Yeah, so I didn't actually define Woofy. So I would recommend anyone who's watching this to go out, and I think it's yeah, I think it's available for free uh, on his website. But order a download Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom by Cory Doctorow. It's like a book that's set in the future and there's no cash anymore. There's this magical 
currency called Woofy that you gain by being nice. Or so if you know you think that I'm nice, I will gain a Woofy. If I have a lot of friends, I'll gain more Woofy. So being networked and then doing something notable. So if I create like a beautiful symphony or I write a book <laughs> and lots of people read it or listen to it, then I also gain Woofy through that as well. And when I was putting together the sort of the the outline of my my book it was all on social capital which very closely resembles woofy i start i read down and out in the Mag- magic kingdom and i put i put it just as a like a little part of the introduction as a metaphor to describe social capital and my book publisher liked it so much that he was like the whole book instead of social capital call it woofy of course i was like well it's kind of it's not my my word but I made sure that in the intro to Woofy Factor I gave a lot of credit to Corey and Corey is a very he's an open source guy I think it's all creative Commons, so he was totally cool with it for sure but that's Woofy in a nutshell it's not my word it's it's and it's a brilliant book it also shows the downsides of a culture based on a currency that comes from you know your interactions with other people and how it can be gained as well so it's uh <laughs> And I think that you know recent political events have demonstrated how Woofie can apply in real life. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's a very good point. I'm Canadian, so I'm like I'm sitting from my not so shiny bubble up north. Yeah, we we all have our bubbles, and it, I think that this it's made it very clear that everybody has different bubbles with perhaps completely different exchange rates for Woofie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although I think Justin Trudeau, our current prime minister, may have helped the Woofie exchange rate for Canadians. You know, you mentioned Justin Trudeau, and I know that you had some work with the Justin Trudeau campaign, didn't you? Yeah, so I worked with him when he was going for the liberal leadership. So this is much like the primaries in the U.S., but we don't do it all at once, like and before, right before the election. We do it sort of in cycles. The leadership is when there's an opening, when a leader steps down, they do a campaign that's much shorter. And I think it's like a six-month campaign from beginning to end. And I worked with Justin then. Do you have any involvement with a very popular meme, shirtless Justin Trudeau? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but I might take credit for the fact that Justin knows how to play up the personality part of social now. Whereas I think he might have shied away from it prior to working with me, where I was very encouraging of not shirtlessness. I may say that's taking it too far, but definitely like play up the your personality and what people like about you. So people like his looks <laughs> and he's a handsome man. So there you go. He's taking advantage of that. I can definitely see the the popularity of being physically attractive in politics. I think that tends to help. And I'm sure that's one of the things you would have coached him on. Yeah, absolutely. I want to take you back, though. You started, you were working for a company with a boss who was very enthusiastic about the internet. But eventually you moved from working for other people to working for yourself. That's a transition I know a lot of people have find challenging. I'm curious how that happened in your life. So the very first time it happened, it was only a few years into my career, like two and a half, maybe. So I didn't have a ton of experience under my belt. And then I was laid off. The agency that I was with kind of fell apart. And I was given a choice to get a sort of a layoff package or 
hang on, hope for the best, but most likely I would get nothing if I <laughs> waited the waited <laughs> it out. So I took the package and then I didn't have this experience before working on my own. But I was really lucky in that the time that I had spent at the agency I had some had created some very close relationships with my clients at the agency. Love my work. They were obsessed about the web as well. And two of them I hadn't signed one of those. I won't take the clients with me clauses, which I'm sure is my old employer was regretting after that. But you know, I didn't ask them to come with me. I just said, listen, I've been laid off. I'm I'm going on my own. I'm probably gonna either look for something new or see about starting something on my own. And both of those clients said, we're coming with you no matter like where you go, whether you go to work for somebody else or on your own. So that just gave me a, like, so, you know, once again, I was very lucky and I was able to instantly have an income on my own. So what kind of work were you doing for these clients? I wouldn't have called it digital strategy at the time, but that's what it was. I think I called it there was no social then. It was maybe new media strategy or something. I don't know, something like that. <laughs> like where, but I was, I did some traditional stuff too, right? I did some newspaper ad buying and billboard ad buying. Like I, I did media buying, like traditional media buying within there and supervised a lot of creative shoots and that sort of thing. But I, it was really focused on the web and doing kind of interesting new media things. So for one of the clients, we created an online game that tied back into their product where you could go into this world that was a little like Second Life would become not nearly as sophisticated but kind of fun you could learn dance moves by unlocking sort of levels and the world mimicked the real world so you could go to real world locations and pick up clues that would help you in the digital the online sort of like game space and it was online and you could play it from their website so that's one of the sort of pr early projects that I did and that was in the 90s. That sounds like the fun kind of work to be working in. Is that what led to building more of an agency around yourself? Yeah. And I, I mean, I really, I didn't hire anybody, but I did a lot of, I did a, a lot of collaborations with talented people. So I didn't do the game development. I worked with a guy named Quinn Mario and, you know, he was a game developer and he brought in his game developer friends and we were able to do this. Then I brought in who would become Quinn's wife, Jennifer, who was a graphic designer. So I worked with them and we all build the client together, but we're sort of what David Weinberger, I don't know if you know, familiar, you're familiar with him, would call small pieces loosely joined. So there was no salaries going outward but we were doing business development sort of together as a team and we would come together when we were needed together on a project. I like that small pieces loosely joined concept. It's difficult, I think, for, for sometimes for people to structure themselves as a business when they're starting out. And that, that feels like a much more approachable way to start. Yeah, well, and there's no, because there's no real, like you don't have to hire people and there's no costs involved. And this way, you know, if you bring in a client that you need to have a bigger team for, there's no costs incurred on your side for, for hiring. So yeah, all these independents coming together. It was a great structure, but there's always downsides to these things. So for 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 me, the problem was that, you know, I, I'm pretty decent at business development, but so I brought in a lot of like work for the group, but on the stuff that they were doing, they were already working with strategists. So like it wasn't, they weren't bringing in stuff that they would bring me on to the the projects as much. So it just felt unequal at some point. 
well, the loosely joined part. I mean, you you have to be responsible for yourself in that in that context. Absolutely. So very libertarian in that way. But the problem is, is that when every man's for themselves, some sometimes you know some people put in more than others and get out less. That's just what happens. And for me, I just made the decision to move on to something else after working like that. So. Well, I'm going to ask you. So what was that something else that you moved on to, and how did you make that transition? So I actually I moved to Toronto because uh, I was living in Calgary at the time and ended up working at, well, I ended up doing some consulting work for an HR association and that ended up turning into a full-time a full-time gig. So I went from independent back into full-time gig because it was it was such a big project. They couldn't really afford to hire me as a consultant for that many hours. And I liked the group and I was spending all my time there anyway. So like the benefits, the great dental plan. <laughs> I think a lot of people do undulate back and forth. And of course, these days, the distinction between being an independent consultant and being full-time employees is becoming more and more marginal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was the next step, but obviously didn't last forever there either. So. <laughs> Nothing does. And that's one of the other reasons why the distinction is becoming less clear. Yeah, yeah. Did you go back to independent consulting or did you actually go and start your agency at that point? Let's just say over the next few years, it was back and forth, back and forth. I actually moved down to San Francisco. I was drafted down by a startup, worked for them for a while, and then went on my own, did citizen agency. That's when we worked on co-working and we're evangelists for early bar camp. It's like unconference where there's no schedule, there's only a blank slate, and you come and you make the conference. That you know, there's been thousands all over the world and did a lot of traveling. And that's when I got also, so I was blogging. And, and I guess this is where the woofy factor comes in is during all of this. And as the web grew and the audience grew, I was started blogging back in 2002. And then my I was drafted down to the San Francisco startup because of my blog, basically, um, I was interacting with another blogger, Shell Israel, who wrote some books with Robert Scoble. He had a client who was looking for somebody like me, and because we had been interacting on blogs for a while, he recommended me. I got that job. I went down to San Francisco, and my blog continued to grow in popularity because here I was, one of the early ones, and I was down in San Francisco. And I was working with an exciting startup. They eventually got bought by Google. Then I uh, spun off. I did all this other stuff, and my blog got more and more known. I was hanging out with like the TechCrunch, Michael Arrington, and Robert Scoble, and all these you know now big bloggers early on when blogging was just sort of coming up. So at some point, because I had a great audience from that, I was approached by a literary agent who said, well, we think, you know, you have a lot of original ideas and you have a great following. We think we could sell a book. And at that time, I had already been thinking, like, how could I create another stream of income that doesn't, that's more scalable than consulting? <laughs> so I thought, hey, that, that sounds like something like that. <laughs> Never written a book before. And I, I've done a, write, a lot of writing, of course, but it's all for the blog, which is very different, of course, than writing a book. So, yeah, so that's what I did. I wrote The Woofy Factor. It sort of came together. It sounds like this all came fairly naturally to you. And I'm sure you had, you had kind of a first mover advantage in some ways in that you were out there creating content and creating social media before social media even had a name. But I think that they, there were other people out there trying to do the same thing, perhaps, and they weren't as successful as you were at it. 
Yeah. So a couple of things. When I was doing it, it was pretty early. There were, you know, I knew the other people and they knew me. Like we all knew each other by first name. And a lot of those people have become very successful since in, in you know, whether they have books or the, in their own way, like you know, Brian Solis and Chris Brogan and, you know, very like a lot of different people who have gone on to do very well for themselves as well. But yeah, I mean, for sure, I feel really that I was very lucky in so many ways, like the right place at the right time. Part of that luck, and of course, luck is sometimes created from being open and everywhere, <laughs> right? So what is it? 90% of success is showing up. But I, show, I showed up a lot. I was there, you know, I, I always had this sort of fear of missing out. And so was at everything. I traveled to everything. I attended every talk. I went to every party and met every person. I followed every blog. I tried to meet everybody along the way. And I guess that's what I think Gary Vaynerchuk, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, would call hustling. I don't like the term, but that's sort of what I, I did because I just didn't want to miss a single thing. And it wasn't, oh, it, this is going to make me super successful. It was that I just didn't want to miss out on anything at all. So part of that, I think, really contributed to me being in the right place at the right time quite frequently. So I was really lucky that way. But I was also like, really just there a lot. And for anybody who knows me, I was a single mom during that time as well, right? Wow. Uh, you know, like I was... Where some people talk about, you know, if you have lots of time in your hands, I didn't have a lot of time. But every moment that I had, I would dedicate to this thirst for knowledge that I had and this thirst for meeting people and pushing myself and growing. And Because I still didn't feel like I, I was able to really grasp what my purpose was. <laughs> right? I, I think a lot of us are going to constantly feel that way until we no longer have a purpose. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, today, that's still what drives me. There, there have been points where I'm like, okay, so there, I feel accomplished, like I've accomplished something. But then, you know, I still feel like I'm only as good as my latest contribution to the universe. And I can't rest right. on, like my book came out in 2009. That is forever ago. That is like so way in my past. <laughs> <laughs> I know things move so quickly yeah. too. And so that period of time when you, when you were just, you were everywhere and you yeah. were with everybody and you were a single mom, it makes me wonder about self-care because I, I get you were following your motivation and you had your curiosity that was keeping you enthusiastic, but how did you take care of yourself emotionally and, and physically? Zero self-care. Absolutely. I would, and there was a lot of things going on in my emotional brain that I was not in control of at the time. I actually end up, ended up towards the end of being in San Francisco, started to see um, a psychiatrist, I guess. Was he a psychiatrist or psychologist? I'm not sure. I never know the distinction, but he... Were there drugs involved? There were not drugs involved. <laughs> Probably a psychologist. Yeah. Then. Okay. But he practiced cognitive behavioral therapy and really helped me because I would, I would go, go, go. And then I would there would be points of spiraling, like anxiety spiraling, which I could not, I did not know where they came from and did not know how to control them. And then I'd be okay, right? Like I was drinking too much. I was, you know, like all these things that were really bad for me. I was not working out. I wasn't taking care of what I was eating. 
And he really, really helped me start to take control of, like, gave me tools to be able to help myself get through everything as well as taught me how to be easier on myself, which I think is the biggest part of my spiral was I would beat myself up. And there was a lot of, like, self-hate that would be involved in, like, not being able to do everything or any time that, that things didn't like happen the way that I wanted them to happen that it was you know I would be I beat up on myself majorly so did that contribute to like establishing different routines in your life for how you take care of yourself yeah well I definitely started to prioritize things like working out and eating better and taking that downtime that I needed to take and really prioritizing instead of trying not to miss anything, I started to be realistic about what I could be missing and being less hard on myself if I miss something, right? I still feel that FOMO all the time, but I'm much better at stepping back and being mindful, I guess. <laughs> that That is a good term for it. Mm-hmm. And th- there's so much happening these days, a, l- a lot of which you pioneered t- to miss out on. I can understand that, uh, that fear of missing out. Yeah. What do you judiciously involve yourself in these days, given given that you budget yourself? Do I, I don't think I judiciously involve myself in anything, <laughs> really. It's, you know, I take a look at, yeah, it's more about setting priorities now. One of my priorities at the end of last year was to get my YouTube channel started. And so, you know, I made sure I focused on that and, and committed to that and have continued to commit to that going forward. If something else comes in my way, I, and that comes in the way of doing that, it has to either, hey, make me money, <laughs> which is really important to me now as I'm getting older and retirement is looming ahead of me, or, you know, be like, be something that is very, you know, important family, friends, people that I love, my close circle. So if there's like a, a wedding or going to go visit family or a holiday or something like that. My husband. Yeah, family, absolutely. What kind of an organization have you built around yourself then when it comes to making money? I mean, what, what is your business model these days? Ah, yeah. So that just actually evolved, interestingly <laughs> enough, from my videos. So my video series, I don't know if you've seen my videos or not, but my video series really started because... You know, I wanted to really learn YouTube. It's a network that I've, I've been fascinated with for years. I've worked with influencers from YouTube. And I just love how it's changing media. And it's creating like almost these niche channels for people to really relate to. And I love the culture there. So part of it was me just trying to experiment with how I adopt that culture on my own so that I can teach others better. But also, I did not see a lot of business content, um, modern business content anyways, any business content that I saw. So YouTube is full of like gamers and makeup tutorial and DIYers and amazing YouTubers that you know, you share in their lives and science people and like all sorts of different categories and disciplines. But when you when it came to the business side of things, there were very few YouTubers that were doing it that wasn't weren't seeming kind of corporate-y. And those and some that were were more how to like these are these are the ten steps that you take to do this exact thing, right? So it would be a tutorial or very like 
grow your subscribers kind of thing that I wasn't super interested in. Truly Social came from looking at the world of social and seeing how far it had gone off its rails. So it was no longer, it did not feel like, you know, when social media, before the term was coined, was starting that we we had so many so many like so many starry-eyed naive ways of looking at the world like this was going to change everything it was going to democratize everything uh the world was going to be a better place we'll have better relationships better relationships with each other better relationships with brands this is great and what it then became when brands came and they started adopting it because there was such a mass of people on it it was like brands buying ads on social platforms to get in front of people and all that utopic idealism went to hell. And when I was consulting with companies, there were so many companies that they were like, okay, so you do Twitter. So can you put together a tweet calendar for us and then tell us how much we should boost each tweet? I was like, that's not social. What? That's not what I do. And so I thought we needed to sort of take back social in a lot of ways by that's you know what I really made my channel about was those sort of lessons and talking about how social is done right and that's why that's where truly social came from and the first one that I did was actually like a year and a half before I even started my channel and it was to sort of teach a client how like their video into their videos were not resonating with an audience because they weren't personable and they weren't relatable at all and they, they were very stiff and corporate and so I wanted to show how YouTubers greet their audience versus how the professionals the brands greet, greet their audience and the YouTubers were like hi everybody how are you beautiful beautiful ones doing today you know very like bubbly and open and like you're greeting a friend at, on the phone or at the door and then the brand side would be like hello I am such and such director of beauty for L'Oreal you know like that was it was very stiff it was very cold and so I did this side-by-side -side comparison and I was like that's a truly social way to greet your people on your videos but all of that together then spun off truly social but what something else happened is while doing that I started to get a lot of inquiries from potential clients I was looking I was just looking to actually get a day job again Instead, I got into this position where I was like, I need to incorporate and start something because I have a lot of opportunity here. And so I incorporated at the beginning of this year after doing videos for about three, four months. And I incorporate, incorporated Truly Social Inc. and signed up my first clients. And I've been growing ever since. And just, you know, 10 months in, 10 months in, yeah, 10 months in, hired my first employees. I know that I'm just going to continue growing because I mean, I have a steady stream of inquiries basically and, and growth and the, the core business model is really what I did for myself, even though I've done generally helping companies be truly social is the sort of the base pitch, the product that I have developed that is sort of the jewel in the crown product is, is helping brands create what's what YouTube calls hub content or like a regular series, not a one-off video, not a explainer videos, but a 
regular content series on YouTube that builds a relationship with their brand over time. So, you know, some of exa some examples that I just launched with a boutique financial services firm that has offices in Montreal, in Toronto, Waterloo, and Ottawa. We've developed series for three of their financial advisors and all very unique ser series. So Nancy Graham, hers is called No Dumb Questions, and it's really aimed at people who have established a nest egg, who are sort of approaching retirement or who have exited a business, that sort of thing. And now, how do you make that money last? How do you spend that money? How do you how do you retire happily? Like, what's, what's life after retirement? That sort of thing on your financial world, right? And then Susan Daly, who's, she's a millennial herself, she's aimed more at young people who are just starting out in their figuring out their finances. So videos like you know, all the sort of secrets to improving your credit score that the credit card companies won't tell you about, you know, what's, when should you start investing? Because a lot of young people think, oh, well, I'll just start investing. But, you know, there's a lot of steps that you should take before you start investing, that sort of thing. So and then Justin Bender in Toronto is doing a DIY investing series where he actually does like screencast tutorials on how to set up your own invest ETF portfolios and rebalance those portfolios and trade on international currency and all this stuff that like he already has had started creating an audience based on the DIY stuff. So, and then I'm working on two podcasts as well with this org with the same organization. I'm also working like with an author who wants to, you know, build a channel around her particular leadership and leadership style that would be the target audience would be human resources managers, right? On leadership training. So, like I'm I'm working with a business audience or I'm working with a you know, biz businesses that have something to teach, a usually a business audience. I have a pitch for a law, law firm right now that I'm hoping to get because having really great, interesting, engaging, entertaining, and easy to follow non-legal speak kind of legal advice sort of videos would be brilliant, right? How many times have you Googled something and you read this big long article and you're like, oh, man, I just can't, I don't get it. But if you have a real, a real human on the other side, talking through some of these really crazy concepts and making it very palatable and, and easy to understand and human, like, I think it would be a lot easier for us to sort of work our way through it. And what a lot of businesses find through this, through this technique is that they actually get leads because people are like, that you've made me understand it, which makes me know that I'd be, you'd be good to work with. Right. I love how enthusiastic you get when you start talking about this. And it's <laughs> clear that this, like, this is something you wanted to learn about. You went out and taught yourself and now you're applying it and you're enjoying the experience of applying it and seeing it work. Oh, totally. I, well, I know that I can truly help small, mid-sized businesses in this way that the tools are there and it's not that expensive. And I think a lot of, a lot of agencies out there will say, oh, it's, you know, $10,000 plus a video. And that's, I teach the companies how to do it themselves, right? I set them mm -hmm. up and and coach them through it and then like walk away so that they can do it themselves going forward. And the, the position that you're in right now, it, it's interesting because you were talking about how your career undulates from full employment to consulting to back and forth. It feels to me like right now you're at a place 
where you're starting to productize what you're doing, but it isn't yet a product that's scalable that you can step out of. Is yeah. that something that's part of your plans? Yeah, absolutely. So my you know, two team members that I just recently hired, they're definitely being groomed to be able to deliver the same sort of service. And anybody else subsequently will be you know, sort of training like a mini army of people that can can do this sort of thing. So right now I'm being hired for me because people see my videos and say, oh, I want to hire you. But the ultimate goal is that they're they're hiring the agency for the expertise, not me. Makes perfect sense. Can you tell me just a little bit about how you are doing this training and like trying to clone yourself onto these other people? <laughs> well, a lot of it is like what I do with my clients, right? It's very hands-on. It's, you know, sitting down and like, first of all, showing and then having them walk through it with me beside them, you know, pointing out, you know, ways in which they can improve things or uh, sometimes even learning from them like, oh, I hadn't thought about doing it that way. Actually, that's much better. Uh, taking them along on shoots right now, just about to embark on writing sort of a, the handbook on this sort of thing. So there will be lots of checklists and sheets of, of tips and that sort of thing within that. So that is also going to be able to like I'll, I'm developing it as I'm doing it and as I'm teaching it and seeing with them like does that work or do I need to hone it for you know to, to work with others on it and I mean I know through developing the handbook it's something that I'll be developing people outside of my organization that can do it but all the better because at the end of the day I just want to teach I love to to teach and mentor and and help others help others grow I have a feeling that the people who are listening to this are going to want to get their hands on some of those checklists if they possibly can. I hope at some point you'll be willing to share some of that. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, it's it's something that I will like have available for sale online for a very small and affordable price <laughs> at some point. <laughs> well, as soon as that comes around, please let me know so that I can add it to the show notes for your episode. Well, yeah, yeah. And I also, I mean, I make videos that have a lot of these lessons in them as well. So if somebody has you know, will have the patience to go through my videos. Like I'm one of my series within the series is the how to do how to create your own web series, right? Everything. So I've got two instances, like what equipment to buy and your, your setup sort of thing, all the technical stuff. And then also then how to come up with a concept for your web series is the, the second one and figure out who your audience is and all that stuff. And then I'm going to be talking about optimization and all that good stuff that also comes along with that. I think that'll be patience well invested and probably so entertaining that people won't even need a lot of patience. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how can people find you online? So easiest is tarahunt.com is my my website, but you can also find me as Miss Rogue, just about anywhere. My YouTube videos are at Truly Social with Tara, which the URL is San Fran Rogue. But if you just type in Truly Social with Tara, you'll see my channel come up on YouTube. Fantastic. I did want to ask you, where did the name Miss Rogue come from? The first, actually, my first company name, Rogue Strategies, and that came from X-Men. Fair yeah. enough. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you being on the show and sharing all that, that wonderful information with everybody. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And I hope to talk your ear off too much. <laughs> <laughs> Just the way I like it. Excellent. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. 
and let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.